Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to the Ringer Podcast Network. Before you get to the show, make sure you check out theringer.com for our extensive NBA playoff coverage leading up to the NBA Finals. Also look out for a 2019 NBA Draft Guide, which now features 50 of Kevin O'Connor's scouting reports. The Draft Guide has a first-round mock draft, big board rankings from our draft experts like Jonathan Charks and Danny Chow, and much more to come leading up to the draft itself on June 20th. Once again, check out the Ringer's 2019 NBA Draft Guide and all of our NBA coverage over on theringer.com. Hello, and welcome to The Recapables, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Today we're breaking down the Game of Thrones finale, Season 8, Episode 6, The Iron Throne. I'm Zach Cram, and joining me, not because he has an army, not because he has gold, not because he has an inspiring flag, but because he knows how to tell a good story, it's Riley McAtee. Why do you think I traveled all the way here, Zach? Thank you. And... For those who have listened to the Recapables before, you'll know we have a sort of structure we tend to keep to for those who are new and want to hear us break down the Game of Thrones finale. We're going to go item by item to try and encapsulate the entire viewing experience of Season 8, Episode 6, and talk about the best and worst moments, how we think it wrapped up in the show, and what the best moments of all of Season 8 and the whole show were. So let's start with a brief plot recap of everything that happened in these 80 minutes. The show starts with Tyrion, Jon, and Davos as they stumble through the wreckage of King's Landing. Tyrion goes on ahead to the Red Keep where he finds Jaime's and Cersei's buried bloody bodies and weeps. Jon and Davos find Grey Worm as the unsullied commander executes Lannister prisoners of war. Meanwhile, Daenerys holds a victory rally in front of her SOC soldiers Danny declares that they did what they said they would, and they won her throne. But the fight isn't over. They will end tyranny and oppression the world over, from Winterfell to Dorne and everywhere else. Tyrion confronts Daenerys after this speech and throws the hand of the kingpin away, resigning from the office, and she has him arrested and taken away. Arya confronts Jon and tells him he needs to deal with this problem. And when Jon visits Tyrion, he hears the same from the imp. It won't be the easy choice, Tyrion tells him, but it's the right one to save the world from further destruction. Jon goes and finds Daenerys in the throne room, about to sit on the Iron Throne. They embrace. He tells her that she's his queen for life, and then he stabs her. Danny dies in his arms. Drogon arrives, and instead of burning Jon, he decides to melt the throne with his fire. The Iron Throne crumbles, and Drogon flies off, Danny clutched in one large claw. The screen fades, and time fast-forwards a bit as the episode continues. Tyrion is a prisoner. He arrives at the Dragon Pit with Grey Worm, and he addresses the continent's high lords and ladies about choosing a new ruler. They don't know what to do, and he gives them a pitch. On his recommendation, they select Bran the Broken as their new king. Sansa asks for and receives independence for the North, and Jon is sent back to the Wall. And from there, various characters receive their send-offs. Grey Worm sails to Noth. Tyrion leads a small council meeting with Davos, Sam, Bronn, and Brienne. Brienne writes about Jaime in the Kingsguard's Brook of Brothers. Sansa receives a crown in Winterfell. Arya sails west to explore and try to discover what's west of Westeros. 
and the episode closes as John marches north of the wall with ghosts and the free folk, and Game of Thrones comes, finally, to a close. So that's what happened in the episode. How did we feel about it? Let's start with our tweet-length review of the episode. Riley. As a tweet, the ending felt right in a vacuum, but the journey to get there undermines so much of what should have made this conclusion special. So in your view, you think generally what happened in the ending worked, but looking back on the whole season and the whole show in general, it worked less well for you because it didn't fit all those benchmarks along the way? Yeah, I mean, I think like, John choosing duty over love and Bran the broken rising to be king and then breaking the wheel. This all a lot of it fits thematically, but when your storytelling is so rushed to get there, a lot of it doesn't land. It doesn't land when Bran is cut from a whole season and kind of sidelined from a few others and everything moves at this breakneck pace for me. So I feel like if there had been a different lead up to get here, this could have been a really really great conclusion, but it felt watered down, in my opinion. Similarly, uh, my tweet is simple. My tweet length review is, I wish I'd read it first. I think a lot of what happened in this finale will happen in the books. George R. R. Martin has reportedly met with David Benioff and D.B. Weiss, and he did that in 2013 and sketched out the broad brushstrokes of what the ending would look like. So we can probably assume that Bran will end up on the throne, John will end up north, Sansa will end up on the throne in Winterfell, etc., because it seems like they would hold true to his ideas. However, a lot of the plot points felt undercooked here. The proper development wasn't there, and I would trust that they would be in Martin's mind. This was most apparent with Bran, as you said, and as we'll discuss more in a minute, but I think even for someone like Daenerys, we talked about this a lot after episode five this season, The Bells, I think she will get to a place where she burns King's Landing in the books, but it will arrive at a very different place. The very omission of young Griff in the show removes a lot of the complexity there, for instance. And obviously the show maybe just didn't have enough time to add something like young Griff in, but that was really apparent and really apparent in the last two seasons, which were shorter than 10 episodes. And yes, the individual episodes were longer, but that's still a lot of minutes missing that could have helped fill in these gaps. The big question we want to discuss about this episode is the next segment, and that's how does the finale and season eight as a whole work to conclude the story? So kind of similarly, I think that the paralyzed boy rising to become king, and meanwhile, the two Targaryens who have been built at various points to be the heroes or the saviors, the big leaders, kind of end up having the connection between them being the thing that tears them apart and leading to obviously Danny's downfall, but also John not being able to claim the throne. That fits to me thematically. It, you know, does the classic subverting of expectations, but it also feels earned as far as how this story has gone. You know, you can see how John claiming the throne after we've known for so long whose true parentage is and, you know, that he's the rightful heir kind of feels a little too easy for what this show has built. And so Bran getting it actually makes a lot more sense to me. But as we were saying, the work to get there has been so rushed and so sloppy. And so even if you get the basic plot beats at the end, you don't get the character ones and it just changes everything. That ripple effect is felt everywhere. So let's talk about that for a second. I think a lot of the reaction, at least on Twitter, was making fun of Bran's rise to become king. I mean, it's funny. It's hilarious. There are a couple of reasons for that. The very essence of the Dragon Pit Summit felt so hasty and contrived 
I almost couldn't believe that that was how they were resolving this question. And even the way it was organized, like Tyrion comes out and Grey Worm says, you've talked enough. And then Tyrion just continues to talk. Like, why did all of the other high lords and ladies assemble if like none of them had ever thought about it? It was so strange. And I do think, like you say, there are reasons for Bran to join the throne. Like, Game of Thrones and A Song of Ice and Fire is at its heart a story about fantasy and a story about political power. What better way to fuse those two than to take the character with the most fantastical power and to give him the most political power as well? That's what happens with Bran here. But the show hasn't really treated his fantasy powers with the same respect that it's given the idea of political power in the show. Bran was famously sidelined for an entire season after he arrives at the Three-Eyed Raven's Cave in the season four finale of The Children. He's gone for all of season five. From there, his powers do some one-off cool things, like the Hodor moment was really powerful in that moment. I'm kind of unclear on what that means now. I'm kind of unclear on Bran's entire role as the Three-Eyed Raven because he explains earlier in season eight that the responsibility of the Three-Eyed Raven is to be the world's memory. That's why the Night King wants to destroy him. But his predecessor was in a cave beyond the wall, not surrounded by any humans. What was he remembering for, and how does the jump from the Three-Eyed Raven doing that to the Three-Eyed Raven being king of Westeros allow for those two to occupy the same role? I don't really understand it, and I wish the show had explored Bran's abilities and arc further if they were going to place him at this endpoint. No one has heard of any Three-Eyed Raven basically before Bran at this point. It's not a thing that is talked about in the universe. Like No one seems to know that these guys exist. And the only explanation we get for what the job of Three-Eyed Raven is, is as you're saying, to be the world's memory. And it's like, well, if no one knows that you exist, I don't know if you're doing the best job. And also, why does being the world's memory qualify you to be king? Should we be electing librarians to be senators now? I mean... It's very bizarre, and I just feel like it doesn't land because there is still so much we don't know about Bran and about his role. Like, did the Hodor moment happen just so Bran could be bait for the Night King, and it's still not even really clear why the Night King had to go kill Bran himself, and then so that Bran could be king just because there was no one else to do it? That whole segment to me of this episode felt absolutely bizarre. The idea of breaking the wheel had a lot of impact starting in season five when Daenerys gives that quote. And then especially in this finale, that phrase comes up a lot. They kind of broke the wheel. They don't have a hereditary monarchy for the moment, but what happens when Bran dies and they choose a new king or queen who presumably can have children? What does that mean for the future? It seems like they didn't really set the stage for what will come next. And maybe that's just a result of, the Dragon Pit Summit lasting like 10 minutes tops and the entire compression of the future of Westeros happening there. But that felt a little undercooked. And I was a little surprised the show returned to the breaking the wheel idea so much in this final episode, only to leave it like that, where, yes, Drogon melts the Iron Throne. But just because there's no throne doesn't mean the concept of a throne no longer exists. Right. I really wanted it to be a council at the end, because then you could say, Okay, nine regions in Westeros. Every single one of them has a seat on the council. And when a person dies, you can replace 
one-ninth of the power at a time. But now, whenever Bran passes, there's going to be a power vacuum that will inevitably lead, uh, not every time, but sometimes to civil wars and other conflicts. And so, have you really broken the wheel? Are the small folk or the normal people of the realm really not going to be crushed under the high lords and ladies playing these games? They're going to play the game. You've just changed the rules a little bit. There's some disagreement among the current lords and ladies, like Yara and the Northerners argue about what should be done to John. But really, they're all allies. What happens in a generation when that's no longer the case, when there's an ambitious Lord of the Westerlands who tries to take over the Reach, right? And they don't really set up what will happen here. Maybe that won't pose a problem for a while because Bran can see the future, uh, there's some question about that. It really seems like he at least has a sense of the future. He sees in his visions ash and snow falling on the throne room. He sees the explosion of the Sept of Baelor. He also seems to know that Jaime is about to come to Winterfell this season. He seems to know that Arya will use the Valyrian blade to stab the Night King. What does it mean for a king to be able to see the future? That's such a an interesting concept. I wish the show had explored that idea a little more. I also think that when you put Bran on the throne, moreover, what does that do for the concept of politicking in Westeros? So much of it is about not just power, but social grace and understanding. Bran, in season seven, couldn't even say goodbye to Mira Reed, who had accompanied him for years. And it's not like we've seen any social growth or development from him since then. What is the country look like with a king who can't even hold conversation. Maybe that's just Tyrion's job at this point, but that's kind of unaddressed too. They they must have known by when they were writing season seven at that point that they wanted Bran to be the king in the end, which makes it so bizarre that they wrote him as the really weird character who can't connect with anyone and has no perspective about what's important or not, when they knew that six episodes after the end of season seven, he was going to be king. It's really inexplicable. And then you bring up the visions too. It's not clear how much Bran can or can't see, but do we think he knew that Danny was going to burn King's Landing and he just said nothing and did nothing? Because that's obviously not a, a trait that you want in a king, and again, it just goes to, you know, the show could explain and say, hey, he can only see some things, but not everything, and he can't control what he sees and doesn't see, but they never do explain that because they're so disinterested in diving into his powers or anything that has to do with fantasy or magic. Yeah, and maybe we're focusing a little bit too much on who wins the Game of Thrones. Both of us have talked before about, oh, the show shouldn't have only been about the throne at the end, but zooming out, I think... Before this final season of How I Met Your Mother, this is a weird comparison, but before the final season of How I Met Your Mother, I remember, I think one of the creators of the show gave some quote about how the last season would feel extremely different from every season that came before it, that if you were watching an episode from the last season, you would know immediately that it was different from the rest. And for How I Met Your Mother, that's because they did interesting things with the time scale in the last season. But I think the same kind of holds true for season seven and eight of Game of Thrones that it's not just narratively because, oh, you see Daenerys and Westeros, obviously it comes from season seven and eight. I think there's a fundamental difference in how the story was told. Part of that was just the natural shift from expansion of the world to contraction. It had to happen in these moments because it's not just Danny who returns to Westeros, it's Arya and Tyrion and Varys and Jorah as well, and Bran coming down from the far north and so on. The very landscape of the show gets compressed. It's meaningful that 
season eight showed only three castles in the opening credits. And one of them, Last Hearth, was dispensed with after episode one. It was basically Winterfell and King's Landing and a little bit of Dragonstone. So, of course, that will feel different. But I think the way the story was told was also different in that it stopped being a show about this thing happens and then there's a consequence so this next thing happens. And instead, it was backwards storytelling. It was, we need to get to this point. What can we do now to get there in the end? And that just feels so different. To me, it always is that the world just feels so empty now, too. When you talk about like immediately being able to tell the difference, it felt so alive for six seasons and then felt just weirdly devoid of life for the final two. Let's stop talking so negatively for a second and move on to the MVP of this final episode. We're going to go a little bit meta here. It doesn't have to just be a character. It can be just something about the episode in general. But Riley, what was your MVP? My MVP is John. Uh, I thought that they would leave this maybe a little more subtly, but him explicitly referencing when Maester Amon tells him that love is the death of duty was so great for me. Amon is a Targaryen who was sent to the wall and chose in some ways to stay there even as his family was wiped out through several different succession crises, actually. And Amon gives this poetic speech to John in his old age where he tells him that, you know, what would happen if you have to choose between honor on the one hand and those that you love on the other? And when Amon asks John that, John says, they're talking about Ned at this point, and he just says, my father would do whatever is right, no matter what. And it felt like John, faced with that same decision here, did what was right. He knew he had to stab Daenerys and kill her for the good of the realm. And I just thought that that was really powerful. Despite all the the storytelling criticisms that we have, that really landed for me. It just played really, really, really well. What did you think of the final scene between that pair? Did you think it played well? I actually liked the subtlety of it, the way they embraced, and you didn't see the blade at all. You just saw his hand sort of shift and heard the soft sound of the blade and her grunt. I liked how that played. I almost thought that would be kind of how Jamie killed Cersei if the Valonqar prophecy came true, that you could really see the terror in his heart at that point, his love and his duty clashing played pretty well in my mind. I thought it was interesting how he says, you know, you're my queen for now and always, uh, however he says it, which is basically at that point a lie. I mean, you don't kill your queen and didn't say something slightly more cliched like, you know, oh, like, uh, you do what you have to or something like that that was like misleading and then stabs her. Because um, it, it really played up how, you know, John is John tells the truth to a fault and I think it played up how difficult this decision was for him. I thought it was shot a little weird. There was like one camera angle where you kind of had him holding her and you could see the sky because it was a low angle and the throne with it that felt a little awkward and clunky to me, but otherwise, I just thought that scene was great. You nailed your prediction about John killing Danny because as a Night's Watchman, he's supposed to guard the realms of men. You predicted that last week, and guess what? Tyrion gave him that exact quote to spur him on. That's his duty, man. All right, who's your MVP? My MVP is the cinematographers, the production designers, everyone who worked on the show beyond the specific acting and scripts. 
there was a lot of talk about the stray coffee cup from earlier in the season. There's, I guess, a new one about a water bottle that appeared in the dragon pit last night. But forget about that. Like, those are small mistakes. This season looked incredible. Even in the Bells last week, as we were criticizing certain aspects of the plot development, it looked amazing. Even in the long night, the parts that you could see, it looked amazing. <laughs> and I think Raman Jawadi's score was fantastic the whole season, the whole you know series long. Even when the storytelling faltered, I think the visuals still shone. And that was so true last night, where there were so many powerful visual moments that sometimes were on the nose, like Daenerys striding out into her victory rally with Drogon's wings unfurling behind her was obviously symbolic of she is the dragon now. But I think that still worked after last week. Uh, I talked about how after she starts burning the city, you only see the dragon because she's basically transformed into one at that point. So I thought that worked as a visual. I thought everything with the throne melting was pretty cool. And then they sort of raised the camera up so you could look on it from above and you saw Danny with just the red mark in the white snow reminded me a lot of after John is stabbed by the brothers of the night's watch at the end of season five and then all the visual work done with the Stark montage at the end which I will come back to more because I love that moment so much but the cuts back and forth of like all right John is sheathing his sword as Arya sheathes her dagger as Sansa gets her dress on to they're all walking down hallways at the same point worked really well. Yeah, if you go onto YouTube and watch any of the behind the scenes about how they shot some of this stuff, I was especially floored at how they did Danny burning King's Landing. They basically had to build an entire King's Landing set with a a version of the destroyed King's Landing under it just to then blow it all up. It is really cool, and it all came together so well. I mean, this show looks amazing. It's like nothing else on television. And that's worth noting because so much of the focus is perhaps rightly on the plot and character developments, but that isn't the only reason we watch the show. We watch the show, like you said, because it's unlike anything else we see on television. And I think I'm going to miss that as Game of Thrones disappears. Who knows what will happen with the prequels and whatever other spinoffs arise. But this was a once in a generation television experience. And I don't think we should forget the spectacle part of it in the course of perhaps critiquing the plot more. Let's move on to that plot, though. Who is your least valuable player of the episode? Yeah, so playing right off of that, my LVP is the writers. You know, we've hashed this out a million times, including already about a thousand times on this podcast. You know, everything was so great about this season, except for the writing, which was really rushed and didn't have the payoffs that we were hoping for. It's interesting. One of the issues I had with the writing in this season was that so many of the lines that should have been the most emotional were repeated from previous seasons that even came in this episode like the moment you mentioned with john parroting maester aemon that was great but that was a line that had been written seasons ago the same with some of Arya's lines the same with all of Tyrion's lines like the fact that the last line spoken by a named character in the entirety of game of thrones is him repeating the honeycomb in a brothel joke i think is instructive about what happened there Yeah, and when we talk about the failures of the writing, we're talking about macro stuff, like the big plotting, the fact that the number of episodes was squished down. I think we're talking about smaller things, like the way that we have a guy who works at The Ringer named Bobby Wagner who said that they always just play the hits now, and I I can't get that out of my head. They just keep going back to what worked several seasons ago, but they don't really change it at all, just playing those hits. And even like 
little tiny details, like Gendry saying that he's a Rivers as his bastard last name instead of a Waters. This is like so frustrating too. It's just like that doesn't change the story at all. You can kind of ignore that and move past it, but it's emblematic of just how much of a lack of care was put into the writing of these last couple of seasons. My least valuable player, uh, unsurprisingly, is the Dragon Pit scene. Remove that, and I actually really like this finale. I thought the first 40 minutes or so, which is up to the point that Danny is killed, wasn't my favorite, but I understood where it was going, and I thought it worked thematically. And then everything after the Dragon Pit scene, where everyone's getting their moments of closure, I thought worked pretty well. But just that big chunk in the middle, which is where they decide the future of the realm, fell so flat that it's hard to remove that sour taste as I think about the episode as a whole. Let's move on to the next section, which might last us a while because it's called Picking Nits. Riley, let's uh, go back and forth where you'll give a nit and I'll give a nit and we'll rack up a bunch. Let's start. Okay, so if my first nit that I want to pick is that Tyrion starts calling the Seven Kingdoms the Six Kingdoms after the North has declared itself independent. But at this time in the show, and really for a very long time at this point, the Seven Kingdoms is actually nine different regions. So if you take the North out, it's now eight of them. So Seven Kingdoms is already a misnomer. You can just keep calling it that. Or if you really want to be accurate, call it the Eight Kingdoms. But in no world is it the Six Kingdoms. Let's stick with the Dragon Pit Summit because the first nit I want to pick is what happens to the other regions? Are they just cool with Sansa being like, hey, brother, will you make us independent? And he says, sure. And then the rest of them are like, okay. Like, Yara had a deal with Daenerys that the Iron Islands were going to be independent. Does she not press that claim? Did none of the other regions of Westeros deserve independence? Why is it only the North? Do they not think it's fishy that Starks are standing up for Starks and nobody else? That didn't really make sense to me. Dorne has been independent for longer than the North and still stylizes its lords as prince and princess as a show of some of their independence. And they literally have fresh armies. They haven't been involved in any of these wars. So the idea that they would bow to a king from the North who's also granting independence to the North is sort of wild. They've really set up a system where they're not going to break the wheel. They're just going to ensure that there immediately should be more wars, which is why I really think it should have been a council and a king at the end. Every kingdom should have maintained their independence because, as you're saying, the Iron Islands, Dorne, and several of the others are not going to want to be a part of this system when they just let the North go be independent. What the hell? The unnamed Prince of Dorne did get one line where he said, I, when he was off screen. So that was a powerful moment for the Dornish people. Riley, what do you have next? Davos says he's not even sure if he gets a vote, and then he votes yes anyways. And, you know, it speaks to, again, how rushed some of this stuff is. You're only deciding the future of the entire continent. Maybe you should sit down and figure out what the rules are first before everyone just votes yes. Also, like, why does Brienne get a vote? She's a very important character in our minds, but why is she a very important character for, like, Yara Greyjoy and Robin Aaron because Tarth is not a powerful family. She's uh, she's Sansa's bodyguard. Does that mean like if Sandor Clegane had lived, he would have gotten a vote too? That didn't really make sense. And of course, they were all going to agree anyway. But that was a scene that felt more written for the powerful image of them all assenting to Bran's rule than thinking through why each of them would have that responsibility. Yeah, Bronn's the Lord of Highgarden. If we're going to give Brienne and Davos a vote, where the hell is he? Also, you noted this, that we're not even sure who every character in that scene is. Yeah, yeah. There's a, I counted 
at least three, if not four people there who don't, I do not recognize whatsoever. And and then for some reason, The Veil has two people. They have both Robin Aaron and Jan Royce sitting there. So real weird. Good luck for Robin Aaron, though. That breast milk really helped. He's been drinking his milk. <laughs> yeah, like he, I guess he took a lesson from Tormund. So my next knit is another Tyrion question. So he talks with John, and he's talking about love and the concept of love versus duty and power and doing what's right. And he mentions he actually was in love with Daenerys, which was very strange because at the end of last season, we all thought Tyrion's in love with Daenerys when he looks on with what seemed to be jealousy as Danny and John hook up on the boat. The script for that season seven finale seemed to affirm that idea. And then it just dropped for all of season eight until after Tyrion has been imprisoned by her. If Tyrion were actually in love with Danny, I think he would have acted or at least said things very differently in this last season. So it felt strange to bring that up again out of nowhere. It's still unclear if he means he just respects her or if he's actually romantically interested in her. And I don't know, it just felt like him saying his emotion out loud for the audience. And it's like, what are you talking about? Next up. Okay, how did Drogon know to burn the throne or why was that important? There's been a lot of good memes going around about this. Either uh, Drogon really has a great understanding of physical representations of power and how that power can then corrupt people and wanted to destroy the embodiment of such power. Or he just saw Daenerys, his mother, stabbed with something pointy and he turned to the most pointy thing in the room and melted it. So whichever one you take can be your interpretation, neither of which really makes sense to me, but fine, whatever. The last we hear about Drogon is Bran saying, maybe I can find him. And this gets at the heart of a lot of my questions about Bran in power. Like, if he has the superpower, why does he need anyone else to search for Drogon? Isn't he the best suited to figure it out anyway? But I do want to bring up one specific line that Bran says in that small council meeting. Yeah. Because he goes in and he says, you know, I see you're all here, but we still need a master of whispers. And my question is why? If Bran can see everything and Bran can hear everything, he can hear all the whispers. He is the master of whispers. On Binge Mode earlier this season, there was a mailbag episode in which somebody asked Mal and Jason, who would be your ideal small council at the end? And I believe they picked Bran as the master of whispers because of that ability. So why does he need one? Makes no sense to me. It goes back to how Bran's role probably shouldn't be king, but yes, should be on a council advising a king or as an advisor to a council that rules over the kingdoms or something. He's a perfect master of whispers. Makes total sense. He doesn't make sense as a king, so that's how it goes. You had another small council question, I know. So Bran is on the small council as the master of coin, and what is it about Bran's character over any of the last seven seasons that would make us think that he would want to be doing all of the work that it takes to be on the small council. This guy just wants to live in a castle and visit brothels. He does not want to be the master of coin. It made no sense to me why he's seated there other than they just wanted to give Bronn something to do in the end. Tyrion had named Bronn the commander of the city watch back when he was handed the king initially to Joffrey. And that was because he understood that Bronn could think like a schemer and a conniver and would understand how to help control a group of schemers and connivers. But this feels like a very little fingerian move to put a guy in charge of all the money when he himself is a schemer that could portend 
doom for Westerosi's coffers in the future. And Tyrion should know that <laughs> Tyrion should know that because he lived through Littlefinger placing the entire realm into debt to essentially further his own means. Seems like a, an improper decision. Just give Bronn his castle and let him go away and live in peace for both of their sakes. Agreed. All right, what's your next nit? I want to know why there are so many Dothraki and Unsullied still alive. I watched the Battle of Winterfell. Seemingly every single Dothraki warrior charged in a really phenomenal visual display with all their Arachs lit up by Melisandre's fire, and they were extinguished one by one, seemingly all killed by the army of the dead. That was a powerful moment. And then we learn, oh, some of them survived in the post-battle reconnaissance discussion. And now there are so many Dothraki and there are so many Unsullied who seemingly made a last stand against the Whites that they can fill up an entire plaza and give Danny the ability to conquer the rest of the known world. Like It seemed like they were intentionally reducing her forces to place her on an even ground with Cersei. And now they're artificially building them back up again to make them a threat to the entire world. And that just seems so inconsistent. A similar sort of continuity error in that vein that I just remembered is it seemed like in the last episode that an entire building collapsed on Jamie and Cersei. And yet when Tyrion walks down there, it's clear that if they had been standing 20 feet to the left, no bricks would have fallen on them at all and they would have just lived. So there's a lot of weird inconsistencies like that that we saw this season. Okay, my next nit is... How did Sam just become Grand Maester? And does that mean that he ditches Gilly because maesters have to vow to be celibate and they they don't take wives, they don't have families, you know, all that same stuff, very similar to the Night's Watch. The Citadel still exists. All the maesters down there still exist. They just allowed Sam to become the Grand Maester. And again, what happens to Gilly and baby Sam and Sam's child that he's soon going to have? I want to know, in the vein of Sam... What is the purpose of the Night's Watch? Now, this is actually a key question because I like the rest of John's send-off here, but I don't understand why the Night's Watch exists and I don't understand why the Wall exists. If the Army of the Dead threat is extinguished, that was why the Wall was built initially, but okay, you could argue that it transformed over time. People believed it was to keep the wildlings out, but the Free Folk presumably either all perished and were drafted into the Night King's army, so they're now dead. Or they all fought on the side of the living and are now friends of the realm and friends of the north. So why would we need a wall to keep them out? It doesn't really make sense. And it's also unclear exactly what John was doing at the end. Was he roaming north to help them resettle their villages? Or was he abandoning his post in a Mance Raider capacity to become king beyond the wall? That was a little unclear. And I thought the rest of that moment was incredibly powerful and fitting with his entire character arc, but I wish there had been some more explanation here. He asked Tyrion, there's still a Night's Watch? And Tyrion says, well, we still need somewhere to send the misfits and criminals, and that part of it makes sense, but what is their duty now? The wall is such a central item in the story, it seems weird to just forget about it, essentially. Yeah, I felt like John should have gone north to destroy the wall, which then would have been a powerful symbol of how you know we're going to live in peace now with the wildlings and um, not engage in all of this xenophobia that defines so much of the relationship between the Wildlings and the Night's Watch and the North and Westeros. And instead, I don't know, the wall is just still there with a big hole in it and he's going north of it because reasons. He should have drafted Drogon to help bring the wall down with another dragon. He could say, hey, you destroyed the Iron Throne. Now destroy the symbol of power north too. 
my next knit is Tyrion at one point says that Bran couldn't walk, but he learned to fly. But there's no reason that Tyrion would have known that quote, which comes from the Three-Eyed Raven from many seasons ago. Uh, possibly Bran told Tyrion that quote when they had the conversation in episode two that the camera cut away from that we never saw, but that feels like deep, deep into Bran's backstory. And I'm just not sure exactly where Tyrion learned that exact language. goes back to how they just recycled a lot of lines this season. Very strange. And we'll finish our picking it section with another line, Quibble, which is, okay, so in the final Stark montage, we hear unnamed characters claiming Sansa, Queen in the North, Queen in the North. But the last words of the show spoken by a named character is the word brothel when Tyrion says the word brothel and maybe that fits the throne's ethos but it seemed like it's moved away from that in the last like half of the show if not more weird way to go out when last lines are so important in how a series is remembered let's move on to the next section which is less about quotes and more about moments and, is and this is going to be finally yes, <laughs> a positive one because despite all the brand problems despite all the dragon pit problems I really liked many parts of this episode. So let's break down our favorite moments. Riley, what do you got? So we talked about this one already, but my favorite moment is when John references Amon's love is the death of duty speech. All right, we each picked three, so I will pick my favorite moment too, and that is the Stark montage. This is a show about the Starks at its core. There was some caution about that in earlier seasons after Ned dies, after Rob and Catelyn die, but all the young children still survive. Well, not not Rickon, but... Well, poor Rickon. All the important young children still survive. It's important to note, I think, that the seventh planned book of the Song of Ice and Fire series is now going to be titled A Dream of Spring, but George R. Martin's initial idea for it was A Time for Wolves. And then he changed that. Now, maybe we can surmise it was too spoilery, but this was the episode for Wolves. The final montage from... John arriving at Castle Black, it fades to black for a second and then shows Sansa and Arya and John in their pr- final preparations and journeys. It's nearly six minutes long, and the only words are people hailing Queen in the North. I also really liked that the final image was with John, who's probably the main character, walking through the trees north with the free folk because the show started in the first scene with dead marching south toward the wall. So now it ends with life marching north from it. Very fitting end. A Time for Wolves would have been a really good episode title for this. This episode was called The Iron Throne. Man, A Time for Wolves would have just crushed it. But last night when I was watching the final montage, I wasn't paying perfect attention because I had already started writing my piece about Bran becoming ruler. So I was kind of paying attention to it, but not fully. When I rewatched this morning, I went back and rewound to watch it like three times in a row because it was that powerful for me. Wow. My next favorite moment is when Daenerys is walking up to address her troops. We see Drogon spreading his wings behind her. This is obviously not subtle. It's super on the nose. Daenerys is the dragon now. She's the force of destruction. She's the tyrant. But it somehow still totally worked for me. I really, really enjoyed it. I liked Tyrion's discovering his siblings' bodies. Maybe it didn't make sense architecturally, but... In an episode full of tearing moments, this was my favorite because he didn't speak. It was all the emotion in his face and in his actions and in his slamming the brick down like Orson crushing beetles uh, 
for someone who has had such a complicated relationship with his family, it made sense that he would react this way. Yeah, I thought Peter Dinklage killed it in that scene. Man, I had the same thought as you, though. When he slammed that brick, all I could think about was the Beatles and the crush them scene. Uh, what was your third moment? My third moment is Brienne filling out Jamie's accolades in the Kingsguard books, even despite the way it ended between them and how I felt like Jamie's arc was so mishandled. That moment in particular really, really landed for me. Uh, it just felt great to see her doing that. She's living the dream as Lord Commander of the King's Guard, but also finally Jamie gets the kind of heroic song written about him that he deserves. And Zach, you called this one, man. You said that it would happen and it happened. Shouts to you. Also, great handwriting from Brienne. I was impressed. My last favorite moment is actually probably a controversial one, but I enjoyed the assembled lords and ladies baffled response to Sam's request for democracy. Sam pokes his head up and says, why just us? Maybe the decision about what's best for everyone should be less to everyone. And there's a pause for a second as they all process their, this request. And then I'll burst out into laughter. Edmure says, maybe we should give the dogs a vote as well. Jan Royce says, I'll ask my horse. And obviously like they're wrong. Don't get me wrong. I believe in democracy, but I think in the world of the show, going from a feudalistic hereditary monarchy to a full-blown democracy where everyone gets a vote without any intervening steps would have made even less narrative sense than Brand's becoming king. Because like, first of all, how do you even set that up? Who's eligible to vote, etc.? How do you decide how to campaign? It just felt like that would have been complete fan service and not fitting for the world of the show. And it makes sense that, yes, these are the good guys, but they still have some backward views. And that makes sense in a story where there aren't pure heroes and villains. If they had gone to straight democracy, that would have just been so naive and and like just short-sighted of the writers if they had wanted to do it that way. You got you to have a ton of intervening steps first and not even like a Declaration of Independence or a Constitution. I'm talking about like a Magna Carta. The, the world of Westeros is hundreds of years away from anything resembling a republic or a democracy. It will take them a long, long time to get there. And so I'm happy the show didn't just somehow magically turn into, you know, a democracy at the end. 1776, the Westeros edition. Riley, for our last section, we're going to ask... First off, was this your favorite episode of the season? And if not, what was? And then what was your favorite episode of all time? As we think about and reflect on the show, we would both agree that season eight stumbled a bit, but that doesn't remove the extreme highs from the entire Thrones watching experience. And for people who will watch the show in the future, who will rewatch it again and again, as I'm sure we will do soon enough, what was your favorite from this season and from the entire eight seasons. I think we're in agreement on our favorite episode of the season, which is A Night of the Seven Kingdoms. That's the second episode. It's the one before the Battle of Winterfell. They all think that they're going to die, and they spend all night sitting around talking. It's a completely character-driven episode, and it just hits all of the the great, important points that make these characters so compelling and why we've loved the show for so much. That was probably the best episode since season six. So I, yeah, I felt like that was the runaway winner for me from this season. Agreed. I think in that same vein, a close second for me is the first half of Last of the Starks. Last of the Starks was the post-battle episode, and they spend that entire first half celebrating and 
drinking and partying at night in Winterfell. That one was of a similar mind to Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Unfortunately, the back half of that episode was less successful because it had Rhaegal's strange death, for instance. But the first half was great. What was your favorite episode all time, though? So my favorite episode all time is The Winds of Winter. This is also the episode that we at The Ringer ranked number one um, a couple years ago ahead of season seven and then after season seven. Every scene in The Winds of Winter, this is the season six finale, just lands for me. This one has Cersei blowing up the Sept of Baelor with the, the great music. Uh, it has Tommen's suicide, R.I.P. It has Jamie and Walder in the Riverlands where he just dunks on them. It has Sam arrives at the Citadel with like a little humor, a little comedy. Davos confronts Melisandre and John exiles her. It has Olena and Dorne and Varys arriving and he delivers that fire and blood line. You kind of know... It's real now. Daenerys says goodbye to Dario. She names Tyrion her hand. And then we get all of the big ones. We get Arya killing Walder Frey with the quote, you know, tell them what happened here. Tell them winter came for House Frey. We get the Tower of Joy scene where we finally know that Rhaegar and Lyanna are Jon's parents. We don't know that they were married yet and that he's a legitimate uh, heir to the throne, but we know who his parents are. It's confirmed for the first time. John gets named King in the North. I always love a good King in the North scene, whether it's Rob, John, or now finally Sansa with her Queen in the North rise in this last episode. We get Jamie arriving in King's Landing and he just kind of stares at Cersei as she's being crowned. And then finally that, that episode ends with Daenerys and her giant armies sailing west. I really like that episode. The opening with Cersei blowing up the Sept of Baelor has music that I listen to regularly when I'm writing pieces. It is probably my second favorite extended scene in the entire series. But my first favorite extended scene comes from Hard Home. And it's hard for me to pick one favorite episode. I think I have two. And one of those two is Hard Home. It's the only episode I ever finished and restarted immediately without even taking time to digest or reflect. It was that much of a thrill at the end. I had that much adrenaline coursing through my veins. The downside is that the first half of that episode kind of pales in comparison to the latter, though admittedly, that's where the original Break the Wheel quote came from, which I think a lot of people have forgotten. But the other one, which I think is probably my favorite if I had to make a ranking, is Blackwater. The season two, episode nine, Battle of King's Landing as Tyrion defends against Stannis' forces for a couple of reasons. First, it was the first time that Game of Thrones proved it could do this with the battle. We've become accustomed to it now after the Long Night and the Bells and Hardhome and Battle of the Bastards and everything else that's come just in the last few years. But remember, the battle in season one, we don't even see. They didn't have the money or the wherewithal to film it. Tyrion gets conked on the head. We see Rob streaming out from the woods and then just see the aftermath. But we don't see either of those two battles. The wildfire that Tyrion springs on Stannis' troops is, I think, the first wow moment of that kind in Thrones history. We had seen Ned's head get chopped off, but that was a surprise. This was a visual spectacle. The contrast between the fight outdoors and the politicking indoors between Cersei at her most uh, cunning with Sansa, who doesn't really know what's going on, and Shay, who's just worried about Tyrion outside but can't let it on because they're keeping their relationship secret. I think that contrast works really well in a pretty obvious way, but one that just keeps the tonal consistency throughout. And I think the last thing that I appreciate more in retrospect, after 
the Night King was so evil this season, and Cersei was so evil this season, and even Danny by the end was so obviously evil it wasn't a hard choice for viewers to root against her. I like that in Blackwater, you genuinely don't know which side to root for, because one side is Tyrion, who's someone to rally behind, but rooting for Tyrion also means rooting for Joffrey and Cersei. And on the other side, sure, we don't know Stannis as well as that point, but we like Davos. We generally like Stannis at that point. So I think the grays and nuance there were so great that that's my favorite episode of all time. But I mean, Winds of Winter, I think, is the obvious choice. And we can agree that all of these options were well above pretty much anything season eight offered. Man, I love Blackwater. All of my favorite battles are, like you're saying, where you have characters that you're rooting for on both sides. So that's Blackwater. That is actually the loot train attack, which I really love because you're still kind of rooting for Jamie on the Lannister side. And then I feel like this one sometimes gets forgotten, but the uh, the battle for Castle Black where you have John on one side underrated. and on the other. Highly underrated. Highly underrated. Great episode. One other thing I want to say about wins as I, I make my case for it. That episode has such a beautiful rhythm to me. It feels like the beat of a drum and every single beat kind of reverberates into the next one. And every scene builds on the six seasons before it, whether that's, you know, Jamie or Daenerys or Arya or John doing what they're doing. It just is all leading up to this moment for every character and it comes together in such a beautiful way. It really feels like that episode is almost musical to me. It's like a symphony. And as we said, let's not forget just because the last season stumbled, what the show had accomplished before, what it accomplished throughout its entire run, because those highs are still so high in at least my history of experiencing television. Let's not forget about that when worrying about the litigation of the Dragon Pit Summit, which I think is important and we should still talk about, but it's not the entire Thrones experience. There were 73 episodes and so many characters and plot lines that were fantastic. The reason that we have been at times very critical of this show is because we love it so much. And so, you know, when we talk about certain old episodes like this, I mean, this show is just special. This story is special and I'm really going to miss it, even despite the way that it kind of stumbled at the finish line. Really going to miss it. So that's it for us for now. You can read plenty more about the Game of Thrones series finale on TheRinger.com, where we've both written pieces. We have Many more pieces. You can listen to The Watch with Chris and Andy breaking down this episode. You can listen to Binge Mode later this week as Mallory and Jason discuss it in depth. Thank you to everyone who listened and who helped us uh, with this podcast run, particularly Evan Campbell, our producer, our very own, not master of whispers, but master of full-blown audible conversations. Thank you to Evan. Thank you to all of you for listening and rating us five stars wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you know how I have to sign off here because it's a throne staple. So again, hope you enjoyed season eight and all of our content about it. But for now, our watch is ended. 